Um, I never wanted positional authority. Never ever wanted to be the person in charge. Because somewhere inside I don't trust myself. And I don't trust other positional leaders either. <laughs> who take the mantle of the boss, you know. But what I always asked the Lord for was influence. I said, I really want to have influence. And uh, when you get older and you don't have any children, you see everyone in their skinny jeans and their cool clothes, and you realize I look terrible in skinny jeans and cool clothes and feel stupid. So I just stay who I am, and I think, oh, I'm just really now on the road to irrelevance because I'm not relevant anymore. And uh, and I want to be influential. I don't want that influence to stop. So when you use the word relevant and uh, helping raise up younger guys to, to, to do the next generation of leadership, that's all I ever wanted. That's all I ever wanted. And to be of help. You know, not, not control ever, just input. And then you do with it what God leads you to do with it. But I get to speak my peace. For better or for worse, I get to give my, my little bitty opinion. And that's a joy. That's enough, you know. And, uh, <clears throat> yeah, we've been with you guys a long time and seen so many changes. And, you know, before you came on, Ryan, I really despaired for the future of this church. I wasn't sure I was going to make it. Many times I said to Shelley, if this church makes it, it's a miracle, given what they've been through. It's so traumatic. And uh, then we didn't get to see each other for three years, two and a half, three years on account of COVID. And like I said this morning, what I see now is very different than what I saw then, and it's wonderful. To see you guys, you younger guys, taking your positions of leadership and, and standing up and doing it, it's just awesome. I mean, it just makes me... I'm proud of you. I'm thrilled. It's just the coolest thing to watch. And to get to be a part of it, to be allowed to speak into your body and have influence is the greatest privilege and the greatest honor that a person can be given. It, and, and to have ongoing relationships. When we come here, we feel we're family. We feel we're at home. And everything's easy. Nobody's putting on airs. Nobody's being something they're not. There's just such a high level of authenticity in your church, and it's just wonderful. There's, there's no religiousness. It's just people being people with God. It, it's such a rare and beautiful thing, and it's super attractive, it really is. This generation, you young people, you crave authenticity. You, you, you can't stand fakeness and people being something other than who they really are. You, you sniff out in, in, inauthenticity very, very quickly, and so you should. And, um, man, I just think I have hope for the future. <laughs> I have, and, and I think, you know, if, if, if a little bit of what I have to teach sticks, just a little bit, because that's all that ever sticks, but if a little bit sticks and it changes the way you think about God and the way you think about yourself and the way you think about others, then it's all worth it. It's just all worth it. So this is a privilege to be with you guys. It's a total joy and it's a total privilege we feel like family here, and uh, that you accept me for being that ridiculous, strange balance. You know, the, the switch, people said, man, you're, 
oh, this is terrible. Uncle John, do you remember my Uncle Johnny down at the, down at the mission? I preached down there years ago, and, and uh, afterwards I wanted to know his opinion. You know, I said, hey, John, Uncle John, what did you think of what I, what I did? You know, hey, Uncle John, what did you think of what I did? And he said, well, it reminds me of something this, uh, this pastor said about another pastor. And I said, what's that? And he said, when he's in the sermon, when he's in the pulpit, you can't imagine him anywhere else. And when he's anywhere else, you can't imagine him in the pulpit. <laughs> I took that as a compliment. That's how sick I am. I mean, I took that as a compliment. But uh, the switch has no middle. It's either all on or all off. It's either all ridiculous or it's super serious. There's just nothing in between. And it's a weird life. But the thing is, guys, we have to be who we are. You know, we must be who God made us to be. And whenever we try to be somebody we're not, we're inauthentic and it doesn't work. There is a direct relationship between spiritual authority and authenticity. The more authentic you are, the more of God flows through you. And this is a generation, this new generation, craves authenticity more than anything. And I don't blame them for it because we've had so much fake for so long. So, um, rambling, but... I really am thankful that I get to be with you guys and that you actually listen to the stuff that I have to say. It makes me very excited. This is me very excited right now. <laughs> Inside, I'm shaking with joy. Okay, so this morning, we talked about the Holy Spirit in and the Holy Spirit on. And tonight, we're going to talk about the Holy Spirit on and focus on that. And we're going to ask the question... If I want more of the Holy Spirit on, more of the power of God flowing through me for others, uh, are there any key truths that I, that I need to have and understand? And Is there anything I can do that makes a difference to that? Or is God just sovereign and sometimes he drops the Holy Spirit on us and sometimes he doesn't and I'll just kind of muddle along until the next time he drops the on thing? Uh, so what, what's our role? That's really it tonight is... What's his role and what's our role in more of the power of the Holy Spirit flowing through us? So we're going to start at the beginning, where we should always start when we're talking about the Holy Spirit in the New Testament, and that's with the day of Pentecost. So let's bring up this passage. <clears throat> First, uh, yeah, here we go. When the day of Pentecost came, they were all together in one place. Of course, that's the first hint. There was unity. Unity in the house always draws more of the Holy Spirit. God is desperately attracted to unity. Why? Because he is unity. He's three in one. And the closer we come to that kind of unity, the more God-like we are, in fact. And therefore, there, the more of him we experience. So they're all together in one place, and suddenly a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven. That's good. Came from heaven. And filled the whole house where they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. So this is the birth of the New Testament church. It's a supernatural birth into power of the Holy Spirit. That's its birth. That's its birthright. That's its DNA. That's what it was made for and designed to be. And God's making absolutely sure we all get that by doing signs and wonders at the birth of his baby church. You can't, you can't miss it. I'm sorry, but... There is no excuse for a powerless Christianity. There is no excuse for a powerless church. It was born to be a church of power. It's designed to be a church of power. God expects it, and he wants it. Well, what happened? 
because I don't see it. This is where it starts. But it actually starts with an earlier command from Jesus, which we don't think about very often. But this is really important because that earlier command leads to what happened on the day of Pentecost. They're causally related, so it's important. And here we go. Acts 1, 4 to 5. On one occasion, while he was eating with them, he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait. Wait for the gift my father promised, which you've heard me speak of. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Why did he make them wait? We see, we skip over this. Oh, yeah, I made them wait. No, never skip over things like that. Why did he make them wait? Something's going on, and it's important, and we need to ask the question, why did he make them wait? Perhaps we'll find the answer in an even earlier teaching. See, these things kind of link together on a theme. In an earlier teaching by Jesus to his disciples about prayer and receiving the Holy Spirit. So let's back up a little bit more. And this is before the book of Acts. This is in Luke. And this is where things get interesting. So I say to you, and you all know this. We know this. But this is Jesus' teaching. They're asking him, how do we pray? And in particular, how do we pray for more of God? And he's, he now links how to pray with receiving the Holy Spirit. This is, this is a passage, not just about how to pray, but how to pray in particular for more of the Holy Spirit in your life or in your church or whatever. So I say to you, you've heard this, but we're going to tear it apart. Ask, of course, and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. Everyone who asks receives. And the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. And now he's talking about the character of the father in terms of giving. Which of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, you're going to give him a snake instead? Or if he asks for an egg, you're going to give him a scorpion? If you then though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father, remember this morning's teaching about the fatherhood of God, the identity, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So Jesus is linking more of the Holy Spirit with a certain kind of prayer. And he's even telling us how to do this certain kind of prayer. Is that handy or what? He's kind of made it like three steps for idiots. You know, like the Coles notes, like War and, War and Peace for Morons, the book this thick condensed into three pages. It's kind of like Jesus is really making it easy for us here to know how to pray for more of the Holy Spirit. So we ought to pay a lot of attention to this because in here, I think, is a key that we need to understand. And to know this, we need to know what he means by three words, ask, seek, and knock. So let's, let's do a little word study here. These words describe an increasing degree of effort. They start pretty easy and they end in something that's absolutely and utterly radical, which we're going to get to. Ask simply means to make sound with your voice and to say, just, just say it, just speak it. Just ask me. Like, is anything easier than that? Jesus, I'd really like more of the Holy Spirit pouring through my life. Just ask. Seek. Now, this involves physical activity. 
It's like he's saying, now that you've asked me, now go do something. Get involved. Involve yourself. Maybe you're going to have to go somewhere. Maybe you're going to have to go ask somebody. Maybe you're going to have to go visit a church. Maybe you're going to have to go to a conference. Maybe you're going to have to fast. Maybe you're going to have to wait. Gosh, this sounds like work. Well, you've got to get involved. But this one's not as exciting or as weird as the next one. The next one is offensive to us. Knock. Knock. It literally means, it translates to an English word we don't use anymore. It's an old English word, and it fell out of disuse. But it's still very, very meaningful, and this is what the word means. It literally, literally means to be importunate. When was the last time you heard somebody say, you're being importunate? Probably never, right? It's not a word we use much. It literally, to knock means to be importunate. We don't use it, but it's a super powerful word. Here's what it means. Persistent, especially to the point of annoyance or intrusion. Knock. Be persistent, especially to the point of annoyance or intrusion. But it gets more radical. Here's the synonyms for it. Persistent. Insistent, tenacious, persevering, dogged, unremitting, unrelenting, tireless, indefatigable, stubborn, intransigent, obstinate, obdurate, pressing, urgent, demanding, entreating, nagging, exacting, clamorous, clamant, aggressive, high pressure, and pushy. Look, Jesus said this. This is how I want you to approach receiving more of the Holy Spirit. He's basically saying, in the vernacular of our time, get in my face and make an utter nuisance of yourself until you get what you're asking for. Can you just let that sink in for a minute? Because when I realized this, the Lord directed me to this about three months ago, and I realized... I don't have the courage to be importunate with God. I'm not prepared to be rude with him. I'm not prepared to be insistent. I'm, it's not in my nature to be that kind of person. And yet he's telling me to be that kind of person. It's kind of like the Old Testament, give me no rest. I mean, to give me no rest, come after what you really want. Get in my face and push and be aggressive with me. Isn't it shocking to realize this is how God wants you to behave when you come to him to ask for the power of the Holy Spirit in your life? Are you ready to make a nuisance of yourself with God and be insistent with him? Oh God, that you would tear open the heavens and come down and make the ground shake like fire sets twigs ablaze, that you would come down and do things we didn't expect. Oh God, there's nobody like you who acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Wait for him. And in the Old Testament, the word wait translates about three different ways. But when you all put them all together, it's this. Blessed are those of God who acts on behalf of those who Hunger with unsatisfied longing. 
The Old Testament word to wait is not a pleasant experience. You're waiting with unsatisfied longing and you become hungrier and hungrier and hungrier. And waiting gets more and more difficult and God thinks it's wonderful. And now Jesus comes along thousands of years later after Isaiah 64 was written. And he comes along and says, I want you to make a nuisance of yourself and get in God's face. Dogged, persevering, pushy, aggressive, insistent, rude. Something's going on here we don't really understand. If we understand it, maybe we'll be able to do it. Why is he telling us to pray for the gifts of the Holy Spirit in this radical and hyper-aggressive way? Why doesn't he just make it easier for us? Order it on Amazon. It'll be delivered the next day. Why doesn't he make it like everything else in our life? Wait a minute. Everything else in our life isn't easy. Wait a minute. It's a struggle. You know what they say, anything worth having is worth waiting for. They say that. Why doesn't he make it easy for us? Now look, Paul backs Jesus up. Paul backs Jesus up. Follow the way of love and eagerly desire spiritual gifts. Let's find out what eagerly desire means. We talked about it this morning. The phrase eagerly desire is an extraordinarily strong phrase. It literally means burn with zeal for. One of the translations is crave it. I mean crave it. It is actually used in some places for the word lust. A craving so strong you lust after the Holy Spirit. You must have him. You want him no matter what. And you're willing to wait for him. To long for him. It's a powerful, driving emotion. And this is perfectly clear. God wants us to go after the spiritual gifts with a burning passion and to literally make a nuisance of ourselves with him until we get these gifts. It's not just Jesus saying it. Not that that's not enough. But Paul tells us exactly the same thing of what kind of heart attitude we're to have in going after the gifts. It's a craving, people. It's a craving, like a drug. This is something I have to have. I can't live without it. Why does he want us to crave like this, and why does he make us wait? Is there any value to this? And I was bugged, guys, because I started craving like this. And I find in the last three months... I'm waking up in the middle of the night with this absolutely burning craving for more of the Holy Spirit, and it's bugging me because I'm not seeing enough. And, it's, and it's, it's starting to annoy me, and I become real insistent in my prayers, and I'm crabby with the Lord because he told me to be. And I don't like it because it's not comfortable for me, but he's telling me to be this way, and it's time to be this way, so I'm going to be this way. But I'm saying to him all the time, why are you doing this to me? Why is this so important to you? And then this crazy thought, which should have been there right from the beginning. Right from the beginning, it should have been there. Here I am complaining because he's not coming through quick enough, and I'm bugging him, and he's enjoying it because he told me to, and I'm not getting what I want. And then I think, you know, why aren't you, why aren't you coming across, Lord? 
You want revival more than I do. You're not, an, you're not the insistent, you're not the unjust judge. You're not the guy who can't be moved. That's not who you are. You're good. Everything you do is good. Why are you making me wait? And then it's the, 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 the logic, just like, jing. Perhaps it's because making you wait is good for you. Seriously? I never thought of that. Everything you do is good. Everything you plan for me is good. There must be some hidden good here that I don't understand. That it's good for me to have to wait and it's good for me to have to get in your face and it's good for me to have to be importunate. I said, Lord, what's the goodness for me? Because I don't feel it. What's the goodness, Lord? And this is where he sent me. <laughs> he reminded me of an Old Testament passage. So I went and found it. Listen to this. This is one of those easy to skip over, forget dumb verses. You know, like doesn't really mean anything until you think about it. These are the nations the Lord left. See, the Israelites are conquering the promised land, okay? And God's going in and beating a bunch of their enemies up and making it super easy for them. So it's like, hey, one victory after another. This is really good. This is easy. All the promises are yes and amen. Man, I'm feeling really good about it. Let's party. Let's celebrate. But the Lord left. Here's the nations the Lord left to test those Israelites who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. There was a bunch of them never had to fight for anything. They're just walking in on somebody else's victory. They're just walking in on what grandpa and grandpa did, grandma and grandma, and then Uncle Bobby and Heimelik McBuck, whatever, you know, one of those Hebrew dudes. They're just going in on the wings of somebody else. They never had to fight. They never had to do anything. These are the nations he left who had not experienced any of the wars in Canaan. Brackets, he did this only to teach warfare to the descendants of the Israelites who had not had previous battle experience. They don't know how to fight. So I'm going to leave some problems in their lives so they're going to learn how to fight. Why? Because it's good for them to learn how to fight. Why? God, can't you just make everything easy? Can't you just go in and beat up all our enemies in, in advance and we'll just go in and like pick the grapes and make some wine and have a party? Can't we just do that? Life doesn't work that way. When Jesus told us we're going to become Christians, we're not invited to a luxury cruise ship. We're working on an aircraft carrier that's going to war. Here's how he describes it. Matthew eleven twelve. I like this old NIV translation better than the one that's going to come up here. So just listen. I think this one says it better. Jesus is speaking now. He says, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been forcefully advancing, and forceful men lay hold of it. And the new translation says, the kingdom of heaven has been subject to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. The point is this. The advancement of the kingdom of God in the world today is being opposed violently by forces of evil. Hello? And when we become Christians and begin to engage in this battle, we engage a legit real enemy who is going to do everything he can to kick us off our battle plan and to take us out so we will give up and curl up sucking our thumb in the fetal position somewhere for the rest of our lives. That's his agenda for us. 
because it's a legit war. And in this legit war, and you guys know it because your church has experienced this, good people have died that we love and prayed our butts off for. And they died. And it just happened in our church too and we're looking at another one. It's not a cruise ship, it's a battleship. And we weren't born into a social club. We were born into a military organization with a fight and a battle and we have to learn how to fight. And the best way to learn how to fight is to have something to fight for that's delayed. It creates perseverance and character and strength and fortitude. It builds faith in us that there's going to be a victory if I just don't quit. Do you understand what I'm saying? We're not little babies. We're warriors. We weren't born into a club. We're born into a battle. And God must leave things to fight over in our way because the enemy's going to. And God allows them because he's building something in us that's going to be necessary for the next problem that comes along. And don't think there isn't a next problem around the corner. The church in this country is going into its worst time. But guess what? It's going to be its best time. It's going into its worst time, and when it rises up strong and it gets this idea of I'm made for war and I've got to fight, and this, is, this struggle is worth it, and I can be importunate with God and insistent because he's promised victories and he's promised his power and he's promised to pour out his Holy Spirit and I'm not going to quit asking because he told me not to quit. And we're going to see the best time the church has ever had because it's going to rise up, it's going to move in spiritual power. Amen. And it's going to be opposed more than it's ever been opposed. But you know what? That's good. You know what COVID did? We found out who was really here. All COVID did was let us find out who's really still here. And if someone in our church said to me, what about all the people that left? I said they were never really here. And I'm not, I'm not making like scapegoats of people that go. It's just they weren't called to this. But the people that are here now in our church, and I think in your church, they're called to this. They're in. They shoved all their chips into the middle and said, I'm all in. Better for worse, I'm all in here. This is my stand, I'm taking a stand. Listen, there's no better people to be with than people have shoved all in and said, I'm taking a stand. Because you'll stand shoulder to shoulder together for better or for worse. And the quality of your... You, did you notice, did you guys shut down during COVID? You were, you were meeting on Zoom and stuff and streaming for a while? Do you remember the first Sunday you all came together again? I remember our first Sunday when we all came together again. The joy in that room was unbelievable. I get to see people I haven't seen for almost a year in the flesh, not Zoom, okay? Not on a little box. My friend's in a box, each of my friend's in a box. No, no, these guys are three-dimensional. We weren't allowed to touch each other, but we had like virtual hugs <laughs> at six feet apart. But we were looking in each other's eyes. There was this joy of fellowship that was there because we were finally back together again. Fortunately, I don't know about you, but on our church, that joy hasn't gotten, gone away. I think they're really appreciated. It's kind of gone deeper. And the people that are coming now, they're seeing something they've never seen before. We meet at the Lexus Center. Fabulous facilities, the Lexus car dealership, but they, the owners are Christians, and they built a conference center as part of the car dealership. The classiest restaurant you've ever been to, terraces overlooking 
uh, the mountains, uh, underground, uh, covered parking, concierge service. Our church has glass on two walls looking out over this view that is absolutely spectacular. The washrooms are like better than any hotel you've ever been in. This place is deluxe, and they love having us there. So much so that they got us little girls in their 20s. I think of them as children, but they're actually adults. But strangely, at this age, they're all children. So they gave us a concierge girl who sits in the service and takes us to the bathroom when we need. It's very nice for old people. Yes, just take me to the bathroom, point me in the right direction. And, and they, they show us these facilities, and they're there throughout to answer any questions that we have. Our church has a concierge. And she sits there through the services and listens and watches and becomes a Christian. So then they sent another one. And she sits there and watches and became a Christian. And then they sent another one. And she sits there and watches and become a Christian. Now the first one's bringing her friend. Didn't come to church, came to, our, to, came to our Wednesday night group. He came three or four times. He came to church. I was speaking somewhere else. My pastor turned him into a Christian. I said, I'm really upset about this. He was mine. I was supposed to do it. You, you stole him from me. Bad pastor, bad. Do not covet thy neighbor's convert. And I said to, uh, said to the concierge before she became a Christian, I said, uh, you're watching this, aren't you? She said, yeah. I said, I just want to know, what's it feel like for you sitting here? She said, I can't describe it. I said, come on, find some words, help me. She said, well, it's something in my chest, and it flutters, and it makes me feel wonderful. I don't know what it is. I said, oh, that's the Holy Spirit. He's always here. I said, do you want more? Yes. Well, then you need to become a Christian. Okay. See, they already tasted that the, come and see, taste that the Lord is good. They've already tasted. Now they just need an explanation. Isn't that the coolest thing? There's a whole generation of kids out there that don't know anything about Jesus, except he's a swear word when you're playing sports. They don't know. And now they're getting a chance to know. And they're being born into power because no one's talked them out of it. Isn't that the coolest thing? We have to fight for what God has for us. Our faith is built by fighting for it. God has left many blessings in the category of what has to be fought for, not because he is mean or miserly, but because he knows we have an enemy who is constantly trying to steal God's good gifts away from us or to prevent us from receiving them in the first place. He knows that we have to fight to obtain and keep the authority and power that he has given us. So he says, when you need me and you want more, make a nuisance of yourself and don't quit. And you guys, it's a, it's a new way of praying. And uh, I decided, okay, I'm going to pray this way. It's awkward and I don't really like it, but this is how I'm going to pray from now on. And I apologize. I say, God, I'm sorry for what I'm about to do, but you told me to. Now I want this. Now you've got to come across. Stretch out your hand. 
stretch out your hand and do healings and mighty signs and wonders and prove to these people that you are who you say you are. And uh, started coming to pre-service prayer, praying this way, getting real passionate about it and insistent. Now others are starting to pray this way. Now people are saying the best part of the service is the pre-service prayer because it's just full of the Holy Spirit. It's people abandoned to going after the thing they most want. And then I came up here, and your pre-service prayer is just the same. And it just made me so happy. Like, yes, yes, let's just go after this together. Let's go after this with everything we've got and not back off until we get it. And when he gives us more, it's not enough. Thanks, Lord, that was really sweet. Now, more. That's not enough. We need more. We need more. There's always more. God is more. His definition is more. There's never enough of God. Enough of God doesn't exist in the Bible. There's no enough. There must always be more because his infinite nature is infinite. So let's get after it. Let's just get after him with everything that we've got. Now what, that, the first part, <laughs> this was the introduction to the myth. No, don't freak out. This, I know, but this is, we're, we're almost at the end of page two. But that was the introduction, okay? That's the attitudinal part. That's what's got to be in our heart. That's the approach we have towards spiritual gifts, the approach we have towards God. He's asking for it. He's commanding it. He wants us to be this way. Now let's be this way. But there's more to our part than just our attitude. It comes down to another thing. I was talking to this pastor friend in the Central Valley about this very issue. What's our part in receiving more of God? Because I was puzzled at the time. It hadn't clicked yet. What's the rest of the thing? And I said, how, did, how was it for you? What's your story of receiving the Holy Spirit? How did, it, how did it happen for you? And this is what he said. He was in his teens. He read a book about the fullness of the Holy Spirit. Always a good thing. Get some input about what it feels like and looks like and how real it is and it's wonderful. It just causes your hunger just to rise up. And he read this book and it inflamed his desire for this experience of the Holy Spirit, this Pentecost thing. And he became a young man on a mission and he took his sleeping bag and he went to his church and he went inside the church into the, into the chapel and he told God, I'm not leaving this place until you give me the baptism of the Holy Spirit. And he stayed a long time until God did it. And God did it, and it rocked his world. He would not take no for an answer. He didn't know the principles of importunity. He had not heard this message. No one told him how to do this. He just acted out his hunger. He just went with this desire that was burning because he'd read a book that inflamed it and started a fire in his heart, and he went with it, and just, I'm going for this with everything that I've got. A number of years ago, I was on vacation in Manzanillo, the west coast of Mexico. We went on this uh, really cool mangrove uh, swamp tour, little boats. It was really cool. And at the end of the tour, they had this ecological thing where 
you all get, each one of you gets a little baby sea turtle about this big around. They got a hatchery, and the little baby sea turtles come out of these eggs in the hatchery, and then they got to go and get into the ocean. So we get to take a little baby sea turtle and name it, which was kind of fun. And my sister had one, and I had one, and her husband had one, a few other people had one. And you take it down to the sand, and you put it in the sand, and the little baby sea turtle has to, they don't have legs, they got flippers, right? So like super awkward when they're trying to go across sand. So they told us, whatever you do, don't take the baby sea turtle and put it in the water. That's its final destination, but you can't do that. You must not make it easy for the sea turtle. They have to fight and struggle to develop their flippers so when they hit the water, they've figured out how to move forward because they're going to get eaten. A lot of them get eaten by bigger fish. So they got to struggle and fight to get to the water. And you can't help them. Once you put it down, you just let it, you just can watch it, but you can't move him forward at all. He has to struggle and fight. Man, I mean, it's heartbreaking. My little guy, he's, he's working. It was a race. Of course, when it's family, you turn everything into a race. So there's like three little turtles all lined up, in a, four little turtles in a row, uh, maybe five, four or five, and go. And then you're like cheering your little sea turtle on, and of course, my sister's gets way ahead, and so I take a big stick and put it in the way, and the little guy... No, I didn't do that. <laughs> didn't do that. And, and gradually, they make it. But just when he's just about there, you know, a wave that's just sadly too big comes and hits him, flips him backwards, tumbles back about six or eight feet. Now he's got to start again. And uh, again, he's got to go. And it takes like 45 minutes to an hour for this little guy to go 30 feet. But finally, he gets there, and he swims off, and he's fulfilled his purpose. He had to struggle and fight to get to the water, so he'll be fit to survive what's out there in the ocean. Is that not a good parallel for us? If we don't have to fight, when the big fight comes along, we'll just be tumbled over and give up. Some things are worth waiting for, and many experiences are better because we waited. And some things are worth fighting for, and many things are worth more because we fought for them. Just how it is. Which brings us to the issue I mentioned this morning about risk. It's not just being passionate about something. It's not just about being importunate about it and how you seek for God, you know, from God for it. It's about taking risks to see it happen. We have to be a people that risk. And you're thinking, well, what's that risk? Well, fortunately, it starts small. You risk little things. Like you're in the service, and you're in the middle of worship and having a cuddly, wonderful time with the Lord. And then this thought crosses your mind, hey, you, you see somebody out of the corner of your eye, and you look over across the room, and this thought says, you should go pray for them. And you th say, for what, Lord? There's no answer. Just you should go pray for them. Well, that's awkward. No, I think I'll just stay here and worship you, Lord. But then you stay here to worship them, but it isn't the same after that. Something's not quite right. Because you should have gone and do that. You 
should have done the thing, the prompting, the Holy Spirit. It should take a risk. Faith is risk. It's just a risk in the face of uncertainty. It's not faith if it's not uncertain. If it's certain, it's not faith. So faith is always, the, the, the move of faith, the, the response to faith, the action of faith is always in the face of uncertainty. There's, there's some sense of, I don't know that this is going to work. I don't even know if I heard God correctly. Guess what? So what? Just do it anyway. Find out. And if you're wrong, gosh, I didn't hear. The person didn't respond. They thought I was a nut job. Why did you do that, Lord? I was in my backyard years ago in Canada having this wonderful prayer time with the Lord. And there was this woman. It was a fourplex, and it had a backyard, then a gravel alley, then it had this apartment building, four or five stories. And she's on the second story, and I'm kind of hidden behind a wall, and I'm listening to her coughing. And she's coughing a lot. It's really bad. And the Lord, this thought says, go across the alley and offer some cough medicine. You've got some cough medicine in the medicine cabinet in the bathroom. Go and offer her some cough medicine. And I think, I'm going to get to be the messenger of Jesus. I'll go and offer her some cough medicine, and maybe I'll get to witness to her. This is going to be great. Absolutely, Lord, I'll do that. So I go to her first, and I say, excuse me, but um, I've noticed that you have this really bad cough, and I've got some cough medicine in my bathroom, and I can go get it and give you some cough medicine. I won't say what she said. F you, effing you, and she's yelling at me like I did something terrible. And I'm going, no, no, it's okay. You don't have to have the cough medicine. I'll just go back where I belong. You know, like, I'm sorry, I didn't realize I was being so nasty or horrible by suggesting you have some cough medicine. She's just ripping me apart. And I don't get it. And I went back to my cuddly time with Jesus, which now is not so cuddly. And I said, why did you do that? I said, we were having a really good time together. And then you get me to go do that, and she just dumps all over me. I said, what was the purpose? There's no point in that. Why did you do that? He said, I just wanted to see, I just wanted you to see that you were willing to do it. There was no point. She wasn't going to accept anything. There was no salvation on the horizon. Just this, I want you to see that you're willing to do that. Thank you. Could we not do that again too soon? Please? Sometimes it's for your own good that you have to wait. Sometimes it's for your own good that you have to fight. Sometimes it's for your own good that you have to risk in the face of uncertainty. It's growth. It's maturity. It's character. It's faith. And when you do it, you're going to see God move. Maybe not in the cross the alley example, but you're, you're, you're going to see God move. So are you willing to be, two questions, simple, are you willing to be importunate with God? Are you willing to get in his face for more of his Holy Spirit? Will you embrace that? Will you fan the flame of desire within you so that it becomes a craving? Eagerly crave for spiritual gifts. It's not cavalier attitude. It's eagerly crave for spiritual gifts. They're not optional, guys. They're not optional. 
They are the birthright of the church. They are the evidence of the presence of God. I did not come to you with wise words or a great oratory or a great slideshow or fabulous multimedia or the best worship band in the valley. I didn't come to you with all those things. I don't want your faith to rest on those things. I'm coming with a demonstration of the power of the Holy Spirit so that your faith will rest on Him, on His power, and not on the eloquence of men. Hello? These gifts, awkward as they may be, are not accessories on your car. They're the engine. Okay? They're not the leather interior or the multimedia screen or whatever. They're, they're the engine of the car. And we have to crave for them. And it's awkward. Stir up. Paul says, stir up the gifts that are within you. We have a role to play in stirring up the Holy Spirit within us. And it starts with, I want to want to. Remember this morning? I want to. I know I don't want to, but Lord, I want to want to. I don't crave like I should, but God, I want to crave like I should. You've got to help me, Holy Spirit. You've got to fire me up. You've got you to set twigs ablaze. You've got to come down and tear open the heavens. You have to do things that... That, that I did not expect. For when you act like that, there's nobody besides you. No ear is heard, no eye is perceived. Any God that acts on behalf of those who wait for him. Long, crave. Fan it up, turn it up. And when you don't have it, and you sense you don't have it, ask one of your friends or your pastor or your connect group leader or your elder or somebody you trust, pray for me to fire up, that God will fire my heart and I can crave for these things because I know I need to, but I don't. Just be honest about it. I don't, but I, I know I want to. Help me. Become a church that prays for one another to crave after the Lord. And, and, and then be willing to take risks. That's it. Attitude, action. Attitude, attitude in the heart, attitude in the mind, actions. Start experimenting, start taking risks, and watch what happens. Can you guys imagine, just, just imagine for a minute. Let's say that everybody that was here in the, in the morning service, let's say next Sunday, for some amazing reason, everybody that was there this morning says, I'm coming to church to experiment and take risks with the guidance of the Holy Spirit in this service just to see what happens, and I'm craving after more of God, and I'm just going to do whatever I think might be him. Can you imagine the level of ministry that would be released in this place? How absolutely powerful merely trying would be? What an inspiration it would be for one another. Can you imagine? There'd be people walking in here that ended up being prayed for by three or four different people. They'd say, this is the most amazing church I've ever been in. These people are crazy. They pray for everybody. But it was wonderful. They really seemed to actually love me. I think I'm coming next week for more. Once the fire takes off, it gets out of control. Good out of control. Like blazing. Like filling the place with his presence. Doesn't take much. If even five or six of you said, I'm going to live this way for the next couple of months, taking every risk that pops into my head. Yeah, okay, so you're wrong sometimes. So what? You're learning. You're exercising the faith hearing muscle, the hearing and faith muscle. God's thrilled with your failures when you learn something from them. 
Where it makes you stronger. Okay? We have some time. Any questions?